0: Welcome to the Leading on Purpose podcast with Jackie, where you will hear stories of passion, purpose, and leadership designed to inspire you to live your best life. So let's get started. Dear God, thank you for everyone that is listening to this podcast and for our guests. I ask that you give everyone favor and help them live their best life. Keep this in mind. You will never influence the world by being dressed like it. So be yourself, be authentic, because the world needs you. Now let's hear from our guest. It is my pleasure to have my guest today, and that is Rich Holder. He is going to talk about breaking the glass ceiling. And as we are celebrating Black History Month, I'm really, really excited to hear about Rich and his success and want to give all of you pearls and tips to help you break the the glass ceiling. So with that, um, we are unfortunately still in the pandemic. (laughs) We may be for quite some time now. Um, It's been really almost two years now. So my first question to you, Rich, is what have you learned over the last couple of years um, in navigating the pandemic? and and by the way how are you today rich
1: (laughs) well uh i'm I'm doing well thank you for thank you for having me and giving me the opportunity to to chat with folks and and maybe pass along uh, a little bit of what i've learned over um my now some 30 year 30 year career um uh hopefully i can i can put something out there that can can help someone uh navigate their career uh a little a little more smoothly than than i had to um so thanks thanks for having me um you know, as it relates to your question around the, the, the lessons in the pandemic, I, I think maybe it may come as a surprise to some folks, but, um, you know, my lesson really was um, number one, I think, two things. Number one was around uh, taking a different view and a different understanding of work life balance. Um, you know, before this, you know, always, before the pandemic, there's always lots of talk about work life balance. And we always sort of defined work life balance as, you know, the time you're physically at work and the time you're physically at home. And so if you're physically at home, you know, as many of us do, you're still working. Your mind is still on what you're doing is, you know, um, but you're physically at home. Therefore, that is, you know, somehow, um, you know, some considered some form of relaxation, which isn't the case. Um so I think I learned how to define that a little bit better, right? Uh, when things shut down, um, I think we were all in a place where we sort of had no choice but to see what's going on around us, um, take in some of the things that we uh, we very often just go by at top speed and take for granted. Um, and I began to enjoy all the little things. And so um, I think one of the big things that I remember is as we began to come out and the kids started going back to school. I got a big kick out of being able to put my little guy on the school bus and take him off the school bus. That he he was always excited when I was standing there to get off the school bus, and you know it was a big deal to me because I have older kids and I've never been able to do that. And I just always assumed there was a school bus and they showed up, so it was all <laughs> good, right? Um, and so this this turned into a big deal, and it, it was a big enough deal to me. Some of these things were a big enough deal to me that um, I said, you know, I'd probably never go back to doing it the way it was done before. Right. At the same time that all that was going on, all that, you know, taking it in and all that sort of soft stuff that we, we tend not to pay enough attention to. um, I found myself being ridiculously productive, Mm. right. Especially on a strategic front. I could sit and think and construct and deconstruct and grab data and, and all kinds of things that I otherwise would have been able to do because there's always a line at my door at the office. There's always someone that wants to talk to me and you never want to turn someone away. But then you find yourself in positions where you just don't have the time to truly, you know, reflect on the things you're trying to do and the strategic reality of what's going to happen um, on some of those things. And so, so, it was um, it was massive for me, uh, and so much so that the majority, even though I, you know, we're largely back to the office now, the majority of my strategic work uh, since then I do I do at home, I do in my home office, because uh, it just gives me an extra boost, uh, an extra ability to look at things in a way that I I uh, I not been able to before, and so I think those those are probably the two big lessons that uh, that I've learned.
0: You know, which you touched on a couple of things that I think a lot of people have reflected on with the first one you talked about being able to Take advantage of the little things and like just putting your son on the school bus. I mean, I think that's caused a lot of people to rethink their careers. I mean, you know, we're going through what they call the great resignation. People are deciding if they really want to go back to the office or they want to pursue a job where it's 100 percent remote. So a lot of people are rethinking their lives right now. And you touched on several really important things. The other thing I really love what you said about that strategic thinking, because I think we all have so many meetings in our day back to back to back to back. And so you don't have, you don't take that pause where you can really think and strategize to help you be more successful. So really great lessons that you've taken away from the pandemic. Awesome. For sure. So Rich, why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, both personally and professionally?
1: Um, originally, I'm from uh, Trinidad, West Indies. I was, you know, I was born in Trinidad. I, I came to the U.S. Um, I was about about 10 years old. moved to Moved to New York. Moved to Brooklyn. Lived in Brooklyn for a little bit, and then uh, moved out to Long Island. Uh, went to high school and so on out in Suffolk County, Long Island. And then, um, much to my parents' chagrin. I turned down a couple of scholarships and I went, uh, I went in the Marine Corps. I spent a total of eight years active, four years reserve, um, started out as an enlisted guy, became an officer, um, and, uh, and learned a lot about life and traveled the world and, and, uh, um, had a wonderful time, you know, ser- serving, serving my country and, and, um, and learning how to perform under pressure, um, uh, came out of the Marine Corps. Um, I had, my degree was in, uh, Aviation management with a minor in electrical engineering, and uh, I jumped into a job with Parker Hannifin Aerospace, and I ran their uh, electronic research and development facility. Um, I often tell the story about Parker that um, that that particular job um, they had gone through seven leaders in five years, and I'm I'm pretty sure I got the job because they thought they could I couldn't be any worse than the other guys, and so they gave me the opportunity. Um, and the big thing in that job was was being able to build a team. We had a group of um, fundamentally research scientists. They were, you know, extremely brilliant people with very, very poor social skills. And in order to get things done out of the facility, you needed to get these people to work together. Um, and I think um, that's where I really honed my listening skills, largely because I had no idea what I was doing. And so all I could do was sit and listen to what you know, made these folks tick, and then figure out strategically how I how I could put them together um, so they would work together and not um, not uh, not number one, not kill each other, and and number two, not stifle each other's creativity because these these are incredibly brilliant um, brilliant people, and so. That's really where my civilian um, um, career started. It was it was fantastic. I, I spent um, three years running the R and D lab. I went from there to uh, value analysis, value engineering. Um, spent a number of years doing that. I was recruited from from that to from Parker over to Allied Signal uh, at the time when uh, Larry Bossidy had taken over and and was trying to turn the organization around. Um, I like to tell people I was the only non XGE person ever. Recruited to Allied Signal because those of you who know Allied Signal, everyone that got hired was a former GE person. Mm-hmm. I spent five years there, and, and it was a great learning environment. Um, you know, Larry Bossidy um, demanded excellence, and 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 you had to know you had to know your job, and you had to perform high, and you had to be on the ready at all times. And more often than not, you were put in a position um, to do something or run something that you probably hadn't done before. And so, what you had to do was become. An extremely quick learner um, and a very in-depth learner because you couldn't just sort of fake your way fake your way through it. And so, so in some ways it was the toughest, probably five years of my career. In other ways, it was the best um, because I, I think I emerged from it a very very different um, different kind of kind of leader because of because of it. It's a different kind of pressure than you felt in the core. Different kind of pressure than you felt in, on the R and D side of the house. Um, from there, I was recruited to U.S. Airways. Um, they were going through the whole change and new livery, all that kind of thing. So I was recruited over to buy airplanes and, and integrate them in the fleet. So I bought roughly 127 airplanes and put them in the fleet. And um, it was the glory days of, of the airlines. That's when uh, we competed on things like making customers happy, leaving on time, things that we don't do anymore. Um, so, so so it was a lot of fun at that time. Um, it was pre-9-11. Right. So so very, very different world for the for the airline. I left then I went over to Eaton Corporation and I spent the, you know, the next 12 years at Eaton Corporation. I uh, I went to Eaton um, originally to run their um, all their lean activity, lean operational excellence, supply chain, all those things reported to me. I went over there as what's called the vice president, vice president of supply chain and operational excellence. And and the deal I, I made with my then boss. Um, was, um, you know, I would help him get that fixed in the enterprise. It, it was, uh, you know, we were growing the company. We were trying to take the company from what was about a $5 billion organization at the time um, to, at the time, we had designed on you know, getting it to $10 billion. Uh, we ultimately got it to $21 billion. Um, and so my job was to fix the operations and put together something that that we would be able to lean on and, and build as we grew the company fundamentally. And so I spent the first... Uh, three or four years doing that. Uh, once I did that, I, I rolled over and I went to run, I got my first P I went to run the power distribution business. Um, that was a really tough business. It was bleeding red. Um, my job was basically to, to, um, break it even. Fortunately, some things broke my way, got a pretty good contract over in, over in, uh, Emirates. um, um and some good fortune, and I was able to turn that business around in about seventeen months. Um, the boss sort of liked what what was done, and he wanted to create a business system that would emulate a lot of what we were doing across the company. And so, I got promoted to become the um, executive vice president of the Eaton business system. And so, for those folks who know Eaton, you know that's kind of the thing that Eaton is known for is 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 EBS, much like Danaher's DBS and um, and some others. And so. Did that for about four years, um, rolled out into um, another business, became president of the Electrical Components Group, grew that business from about a $600 million business to to just, just shy of $3 billion, um, was for the large part and probably still is one of the most profitable segments of an Eaton Corporation. Um, it had all the engineering, it had all breakers, that kind of thing. So it was, it was a fantastic business. Um, I left there, you know, as, as many of us do, we find a place in our career where we're waiting for the big job, and the big job didn't come um, for many reasons, right? And and many of them legitimate. But you know, um, you you always have two choices at that point, right? You either roll with it or or you go pave your own way. I'm I'm someone that fundamentally believes you need to um, you need to bet on yourself wherever you can. And so I rolled out and I left. I left a wonderful job. Like I said, three billion dollar business had everything you can imagine that comes with running a business that big. And I left and I went to become the CEO of a $200 million public company in Johnson City, Tennessee. Hmm. So I might have been, I think my family was one of, I don't know, six black families in the town, that kind of thing. Um, But ultimately, over the course of five years, grew that business from a $200 million bearing bearing components automotive focused company to a $1.5 billion diversified industrial But the largest component being a med device business growing at 23% and operating at about 35% EBITDA. Um, So it's the epitome of betting on yourself because I went in and and I actually took a lower salary, but I took a lot more at-risk pay, which, um, you know, when you multiply the company by 8 or 10, that that works well when the stock goes from 5 to 30 that Works well. Um, and so I, I, I just mentioned that because I encourage people to bet on themselves all the time. Too many times, people get stuck on I need this salary rather than what is my compensation looks like anyway. Um, so I did that. Um, um I rolled out of NN and started doing pr- predominantly board work. I sit on three board of directors, I do a bunch of advisory work for private equity, I structure deals, I bring new. New products to market for primarily um, minority entrepreneurs. Um, and in the middle of all that, one of the boards that I sat on, the CEO took ill. company got in trouble. The board asked me to step in and become the CEO. This is HDO co- Corporation, which is a nanotechnology company. And so I took over. So today I'm the CEO of, of HDO Corporation. And I am uh, also um, a member of the board of um, Southwire
0: Corporation and Interpact Corporation. Wow, that's the same. <clears throat> what a career, Rich. Woo. <laughs> wow, there's so many things I want to ask you from, from that overview of your experience. So I'm actually going to start first here and go a little bit backwards. And I'm uh-huh. actually going to ask you a couple of questions about what were you like as a kid? So you have actually had a phenomenal career, clearly. You, um, growth, every company that you worked for, you've made a positive difference in the way of growth and output. So phenomenal. So what were you like as a kid?
1: Yeah, so, so, so my mom tells me I owe, I, I was always that kid that was, um, sort of looking to make a business. Right. I, uh, I think my, um, I'm a, I'm a skater, right. I'm a roller skater. And so I think I was 10 or 11 and, and, uh, my skates got stolen. And my parents, as many immigrant parents do, said, there's no way I'm buying you another pair of skates ever in life. You have to figure it out. And so that's when I started working. So I must have been, I don't know, 11 or 12 years old. And I started bagging groceries and taking um, groceries home for people. And they were paying me tips. And I was saving my tips to buy my skates. Um, And pretty soon I figured out I could get a bunch of people that would do that for me and I could get a cut. So I ran around recruiting kids (laughs) to do that. Um, and so I had six or seven kids working for me. I was making money. I was keeping them going <laughs> and I had, I had my first, I had my first business, um, which is, you know, interesting. Cause I, I bought my skates and I kept working. Right. <laughs> we, we moved out to Long Island and I got a paper route and I figured out how this thing works. So I, I got a bunch of kids, got four paper routes and took a cut of each paper route and took that bought a couple of lawnmowers, got a bunch of kids and we wow. were cutting ones <laughs> and, making, and making, making money. Wow. So I, so I think it's always, it's always been an, an itch for me to run a business. Um, but I will tell you, ironically, when I was going to school and when I started my career, it never dawned on me that I was going to be someone running a business. Um, The reality was I didn't really know what I wanted to do. So so when I started my career, my civilian career, my goal was to be a vice president before I was age 40. That was my goal. I didn't really care vice president of what it I just I didn't know enough to know what I could what I could do. I just knew where I wanted to get to. Um, and I viewed myself as an as an operator at the time. So I never really thought I would be the person running the PL. I always figured I'd be the person supporting the person running the P&L. Um and, and and fortunately, I had some good breaks because I got some great mentors. Um, um, half of them didn't really know they were my mentors. Um, but I had great mentors over, over time. Um, I followed some, some, some really sharp people. Um, and I didn't allow myself, um, to ever dwell in my career. Uh, anytime I was sitting in a place that I felt I was moving sideways, I left immediately. Um, and so that's, that's kind of the progression. So I was, I think I've always been kind of, a, from a kid on, I've always been this kind of hyper, let's get it done, you know, we can do it better than
0: anyone else kind of person. That's pretty amazing that you started off as a kid, as a as an entrepreneur, just getting other kids to work for you, just really being focused on business opportunities, and yeah, that's pretty amazing. Um, so, Rich, what, what would you say, if I think about what you just shared with us, Your just what you're like as a kid, what you've done in your career, you've had tremendous success. What would you say are the biggest lessons that you have learned that have really shaped who you are today over your life?
1: Yeah. So I think I go back to something I said earlier. Um, I think that if if I would have known then what I know now, I would have bet on myself a lot earlier. Right. There was a you know early in my career, I was. I was, um, I think, like everyone else, right? You're, you're, you can only see what's in front of you, right? And so, if you're, if you're the, um, you know, if you're the guy running the 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 research and development facility, then you know, the, the big job is the head of engineering, right? Or the head of operations in the plant because you're in the plant, or you know, in the group because you're in the group. You don't think about things, and you don't have the ability to see things on the corporate level or the larger industry level and things of that nature. Um, so so you it takes a while to get yourself in a position. And typically it takes someone to guide you there. And, that, and and this is irrespective of what your background or ethnicity is. If someone doesn't bring you into the fold and say, hey, this is this is sort of how this works. You don't know. You don't know what's happening in, um, in the back room. And so I think had I have known that earlier, I would have known um, my own worth um, and pushed for that a lot earlier. And I would have certainly bet on myself um, a lot earlier. I think without a doubt, that's the number, that's the number one lesson that, 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 I, um, that I take with. I think secondarily, um, the other thing is having a better understanding of the trade-offs, Um, every day, whether it's something as simple as what time you get up in the morning and go to work or how late you stay or how much you network or how much you socialize or, um, you know, what industry organizations you're a part of, all these different things. Um, I think if I know then what I know now, um, I would have better understood the trade-offs and I would have used the the trade-offs in a much more strategic fashion. So I I am someone that is I would describe myself as a voracious learner. I love I love to learn. I'm always I, believe it or not I don't like to read, but I read all the time only because reading is the only way I can get the information right. Um, and so you know, sort of connected to the first part of this, because my 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 field of vision was so limited. What I try to do is become um, the expert. Um, from an intellectual perspective of whatever it was I was doing, as opposed to understanding how the world opens up for me and looking ahead two or three steps and becoming the expert in that, right? And so I lost a lot in terms of trade-offs because I became the best research and development guy, but that didn't really prepare me to become the best PL person, right? And when I took my first and um, I became the best general manager, but I wouldn't have been a good president, right? And so had I have known and understood those things, I think my my learning um, I could have used um, much more efficiently. Um, I can't look. I can't complain of where I am in the career. right? I got I, I pretty much got a lot further than I ever thought I would. So there's no complaints there. But the likelihood is I probably would could have would have and could have gotten there um, in a much sort of straighter line than. And I did.
0: Okay. So those, so a couple of things I want to build on you. So you mentioned that people that you didn't understand, like sort of outside of your kind of current role or department that you were in, and it takes someone to open up your eyes to the possibilities or what's out there. How do people, if someone doesn't come to them? to help them understand other opportunities, what advice would you give to people to really find out what some other opportunities are? What, some, what are some of the opportunities available to them?
1: Yeah, so, so you know, there's always the traditional routes, right? So, you know, if there's mentorships available, folks that are willing to, to, to school you and so on, you know, Take advantage of it. even even if you don't think that that's what you want. Having that knowledge, some sometimes knowing what you don't want is is way more powerful than knowing what you do, right? Um. So so take advantage of it. But in my case, a couple times, just because um you know very seldom was there anybody around that even looked remotely like me. Um. I had to I had to um, use folks to mentor me that didn't know they were my mentors. Um. So what do I mean by that? Um. I looked at folks where I thought they were in their career, um, how well I thought they were doing. Um, and I began to emulate the characteristics that they had, that I thought was the secret sauce for how they got there, right. So this is not the most efficient way to do it. But in at, at that time, um, there wasn't any really anywhere else for me to go. And so that's what I did. You know, I looked at, you know, the the front end guy, the sales guy and and part of what he had was the ability to, to, to talk and chat with people in a very easy way, to disarm them, to make them comfortable. And when he did that, he could, he could sell. And so I said, that's a characteristic. I need, to, I need to learn how to do that because what you want is people to listen to you. And for them to listen to you, they need to, they need to be disarmed, especially when you don't look like that, right? Mm-hmm. Especially when you don't do what they do, right? Um, so that's a characteristic that I put high on my list to develop. Right. Um, Another characteristic that I had to develop was, you know, you can you can work hard. This is going to sound a little hard when I say it. You can work hard. But if nobody knows you're working hard, then count. So how do you how do you work hard, um, work efficiently and make sure it's appropriately seen and appreciated? Right. There were folks that were good at that. And so I emulated them. You see what's working and how do I dissect that? And then how do I emulate that and make it work for me, right? Now you can't force it, right? But the knowledge says, okay, how do I adjust what I do um, to be able to take advantage of that? And so so I did a I did a lot of that. Fortunately for me, as I got um, you know, when I went over to Eaton Corporation, Eaton had a wonderful um mentorship program. And I was fortunate enough that that the gentleman who recruited me to Eaton became became my mentor and is a personal friend to this day. Um, And, and he taught me what I call, you know, the back room behavior, He called, he he taught me what happened, um, in the room that no one gets to go into, um, long before I was the guy in the room, right? And careers are made and careers are destroyed in that room. And people have no idea what's going on in that room. The conversation about
0: you when you're not in the room, right? Absolutely. Yeah, Absolutely. Thank you for listening to part one of Breaking the Glass Ceiling with Rich Holder. I am sure you learned a lot from Rich. I know I certainly did. There were so many great pearls, even in just his career journey. So please stay tuned for part two, which will be coming out in one week. Thank you for listening.